Well, turn with me, please, to Joshua 24, the book of Joshua, chapter 24. And as you turn there, I too want to thank you so much for the support, your generosity uh, from Pastor Appreciation Month and the ways that this church takes care of my family in more ways than one. So thank you so much for being you. Love you guys so much. Glad to be here and glad to be with you. We're going to finish the book of Joshua today, Lord willing, and uh, it's, it's been a fun series for me. I've enjoyed it. We've seen God's faithfulness through all sorts of events in Israel's history. We've seen God show that He is not only a good and faithful God, but He is sovereign over all things, that He has fought the battle for Israel. And now the people are called to remain committed to God. The people are called to devote themselves to God. And I'll just read verses 14 and 15, and then I'll open with a prayer. Joshua 24, verse 14. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Father, we thank you so much for this text that we have before us today, this account in Israel's history. We thank you that we get to learn from what Israel went through, that you've preserved this record for us. And we ask today that as we look into your word, that you would make it clear how we are to think, how we are to understand uh, about you, about us from your word. Help us to make application by Your Spirit's power to our lives today. And Lord, we ask together too that though I am a fallen man, that I would not get in the way of Your Word today, but that You would use me to preach Your Word clearly and that Your Word indeed would be clear to Your people. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first 13 verses of Joshua 24, I just made a note of last week, and I'll make a note of again this week. These first 13 verses are pretty amazing. If you never thought you could sum up the, uh, a, not the whole Old Testament, but a bulk of the Old Testament in 13 verses, here it's shown that it can be done. God explains to Israel over again how it is that they came to be how it is that they got to the place where they are today. God's giving an overview in these first 13 verses from Abraham up until this point in their history. He's declaring His own sovereign grace. And I just want to point out to you as you look at these passages, uh, or at this passage rather, verses 1 to 13, look at all the times where God refers to Himself with I. You can see over and over again, God is saying that He did something. You'll see that God says, I took, I gave, I sent, I plagued, I brought, I destroyed, I delivered. You see that over and over and over again through the passage where God is declaring His sovereign goodness to this nation. Israel did not exist by some accident. This was not happenstance 
that brought Israel to this point. It was the intimate work of God in bringing them to where they were on this day. And after Yahweh made His goodness and His faithfulness undeniably clear in that that opening section here in our chapter today, the people are now called to fidelity. Before I prayed, I, I read to you those first two verses that are quite familiar. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Joshua gives them a choice, but it's not really a choice, is it? He's telling them, by, by calling them to choose, he's telling them who to choose, and he's calling them to devote themselves, just like his own household, to serve the Lord. There at the end of verse 15, Joshua says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, the choice set before the people is quite preposterous, isn't it? Look again at verse 14, uh, where he calls them to put away their gods, to, to do away with them. And then in 15, he says, now make the choice, the one true God or false gods. Which one will it be? He doesn't give them any room for neutrality, does he? You would think in our modern society, of course, there would be a third option. Well, some people can just be atheists or agnostic. Isn't it possible for some people just to be completely neutral on the topic of religion or completely neutral on the topic of God? Well, not according to Joshua here. Joshua here gives them a choice, the one true God or a false God. And this, of course, was a life-altering choice for Israel. I want to read to you one final time an extended quote here from Dale Ralph Davis. He says, Is he serious about which pagan gods they should choose? How could that really be a choice? I think that is precisely Joshua's point. He is using a reductio ad absurdum. He says, Serve Yahweh, but if you won't, choose which non-gods you will serve. You will say, but that's stupid. Choosing between pagan gods is really absurd. Joshua retorts, that's precisely my point. If you reject Yahweh, you are stupid. And the only options left are so absurd that they make no sense at all. Isn't that true? Choose God or do the stupid thing and choose a false god. Now, I thought it was interesting, uh, Schaefer made this point in his commentary, going back to verse 1 and, and continuing the flow of the thought all the way through verse 15. It's interesting how there are bodies of water connected to these false gods. It's describing Israel's travels, and as they went about into Egypt and out of Egypt and where they are today, they dealt with many different bodies of water, and where they were, there were always pagan gods. It talks about the river. You might see that there in Verse 2 of the chapter talks about the river. That's, of course, the great river, the Euphrates. Abram and his family lived well beyond the Euphrates. They were, they were way away from the land of Canaan when God called them. Abram was, was called out of paganism. You see, Abram wasn't walking around as a neutral guy. There is no neutrality. He had a pagan god before God called him to service, before God called him to faith. There were certain gods there where Abram was. You see, too, in the text, as Israel's history is recounted, the Red Sea. The Red Sea is mentioned down in verse 6. Well, when Israel went down to Egypt, they were hemmed in by the Red Sea. And when they were in Egypt, 
certain false gods were there too, weren't there? Everywhere they went, there were false gods, and Egypt was no exception. And then God miraculously stops up the Jordan, and Israel comes across, and they enter into the land of the Amorites. False gods are there too. Certain lowercase g gods exist everywhere they went, no matter which body of water they crossed, they had the opportunity to adhere themselves to false gods. And they were called to put away all these false gods, whether they were the false gods of Abram's day, the false gods of Egypt, the false gods that were around them in the land of Canaan, all of them were to be put away. Joshua is here saying in his sermon, I guess we could call this a sermon from Joshua, right? He's saying here in his sermon that whatever idols you may have in your past, whatever temptations you have to take your heart away from God here in the present, all of that must melt away in the fiery power of the holiness of God. All of the false worship, all of the tendencies and temptations that you have to go away from God, recognize the holiness of God, and may the fire of His holiness burn up your false worship. That's the calling here. You think that's still applicable today? I'd say so. Our God is still a consuming fire, isn't He? Scripture says. He's a jealous God. More on that in a moment. This does lead us, if we're thinking here this morning, verses 14 and 15, if we are thanking people, I don't know how much coffee you had this morning, and I don't know if you know if you're in that category or not of a thinking person, but um, there is a fundamental, critical question that we have here before us. What does it mean to choose God? That's the calling set before the people, choose God or choose idols. Well, what does it mean to choose God? How are we to know if we've done such a thing? Well, there are great indicators here in the text. Again, look at verse 14, the start of verse 14. Israel is called to fear the Lord. Their first instruction here is to fear. That's quite interesting. Maybe not the first thing you would call somebody to do, but Israel is called to fear God. This is awful worship, not awful, like bad or disgusting worship, but full of awe, full of reverence, that true worship of the one true God, recognizing God's power, recognizing God's authority, recognizing God's greatness. He is the Almighty One. It is impossible to truly worship God, to come to God and and truly bow down with a heart of worship. It's impossible to choose God if you don't fear Him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. The fear of the Lord leads a man to repentance. This is why God dried up the Jordan. If you can remember all the way back to chapter 3 when God did that, He stopped the Jordan way up the river and they walked across on dry land. And after He did that, you know what God said to the people? He told them why He did it that all people may know that I am God, and that you, Israel, may fear me. That's why he did it, was that all people would know, but that Israel in particular would fear. Are these accounts in Scripture real to us? I hope they are. 
You've not walked across a dry sea. You've not walked on water. You read these stories and they seem distant. They seem unreal. They seem so far away. But God has preserved these that you too may fear, that you too may know and recognize that He is the one true God and that that would prompt us to worship, that that would lead us into worship, that we would have a true awe-filled relationship with the one true God. In the New Testament, it talks about the fear of God as well. That's not just an Old Testament thing, you know. In the New Testament, it talks about in the fear of God, we worship. We worship God truly when we fear God. It says in the New Testament that we perfect holiness in this life in the fear of the Lord. How are you to grow in your sanctification? How are you to grow in holiness? In the fear of the Lord. Without that, without the fear of the holiness of the one true God, you too will never realize holiness in your life. Even when talking to slaves, it says that the slaves were to serve their masters in the fear of the Lord. In the way that we serve people in our lives, it's to be done out of fear of God. That's at the heart of it. So first, when it comes to choosing God, we must ask, do we fear Him? Do we fear Him? Secondly, we see the term serve. Verse 14, therefore, fear the Lord and serve Him. This is a natural outflow of the fear of God, isn't it? These are just linked. If you fear God, you'll recognize your life is given over to Him as your maker. He's your true master. He's the one who has all authority over your life. Service is the natural outflow of our fear of God, a life given over to Him. And this statement is qualified by two words. You see that in verse 14 as well. We are to serve Him in sincerity and in truth. Not to serve Him any old way, however you want to define it. You're not to serve God in some made-up way that makes you feel nice inside or to cut a corner or whatever it may be. But all of our service to God, as we choose God, as we worship God, our service is to be in sincerity and in truth. I love that these two words are put together here. That word sincerity means what? But from the heart. That we serve God not as a mere external thing, not as a showy thing, not out of fear of man, but because we fear God in our heart. We serve Him from our heart. We're devoted to Him in the innermost person before we serve Him outwardly. And this, of course, was very critical for Jews as it is for us today because the Jews had 613 laws they were called to obey. And it perhaps would be quite simple for them just to go through the motions as it is for all of us today too. You can see these things that you see Scripture calls you to do and you just do them externally, but not from a heart given over to the Lord in sincerity. Did you know that you can give the appearance of serving the Lord sincerely, but God sees your heart and He knows that it's insincere? That's a reality in, in the Christian life. That's why Paul says, this is in Romans chapter 2, when he's talking about who a true Jew is, Romans chapter 2, verse 29, Paul says, he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. See the distinction between internal and external? A true internal given over to God. 
in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, he makes this amazing statement, for they are not all Israel who descended from Israel. Externals don't matter to God. Your birth certificate that shows you're of a certain bloodline, well, does, does that make you okay with God? No, it does not. It absolutely does not. Does that mean that it doesn't matter what you do in life, you're good because you have certain, a certain pedigree given to you? No. What does Paul say? Philippians 3. His whole pedigree, he counts it as dung. It's rubbish. It doesn't matter where you came from. Do you love God from the heart? Because man looks on the outside, but God looks at the heart. Isn't that true? And it's not just insincerity, because you can, you can serve God in sincerity, but you can be sincerely wrong too, right? He pairs truth with sincerity. Our service to God is to be sincerely truthful worship. That means our choosing of God is to be based on reality, to be based on what God has revealed, not the God of our imagination, not what we wish God was like in our own sinful, rebellious mind, but we are to base our worship, our choosing of God, our following of God on reality, who God really is. In 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul calls this young pastor to be diligent to present himself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. This isn't the word of fables. This isn't the word of man-made religion. This is the word of God, and because this is God's word, this is the word of truth, isn't it? It's the word that contains the truth of God that changes us, that shapes us, that defines our worship, that tells us what it means to walk with God. Our service to God is no good without either sincerity or truth. You can have truth that you conform to outwardly, externally, but that's no good if your heart isn't given over to God in faith. And you can have this idea of being sincere you can have this idea of being devoted, but if you're devoted to an idol or a false god, the end of that is death. Your sincerity cannot save you without truth. Sincerity and truth must be coupled together if we are to choose God in our service. And the fear of God, the service of God is revealed in true repentance. We see that next in verse 14. We fear the Lord, we serve Him in sincerity and truth, and now Joshua says, put away the gods which your fathers served. Repent. Put away the false gods. All the false notions that you had about God or yourself or how life works, all the false notions you had of, of, of what you were to worship or how you were to worship, put those away. That's Repentance. To put away that which is false and to yield to that which is true. You can't come to the holy God with little g gods in your hand. You can't come to Yahweh in worship while holding on to idols, to false gods. The works of man's hands, these creatures that we're so tempted to worship, starting with ourselves, right? These creatures we're so tempted to worship must be repudiated. That worship has to be forsaken. And we must come to God truly in fear and in service 
evidenced by repentance. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, this is what Paul said about the Thessalonians' faith, how other people reported about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve, notice these adjectives, a living and true God. A living and true God. Verse 10, and now what are they doing? To wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. When you turn from false worship to true worship, when you choose Yahweh over idols, you're turning from that which is dead, that which is a lie, that which is damnable, condemnable, something that will drag you down to the pit of hell to serve the living and true God. That's what choosing God is. That's the big reality of what choosing God is, is you are now, by His grace, joined to Him, the living and true God, for all eternity. That means you're joined to life and truth. That means you're made right with Him and you're kept by His power. You see how big this choice is? Choose for yourselves today, not tomorrow. You can't go back and change yesterday. So choose for yourself today whom it is that you will serve. And you only have two options, true and living God or a false and dead God. The choice is obvious, isn't it? Well, we notice here too in verse 15 that these three elements of fear and service and repentance, these were preached to both individuals and to households. You had a collection of people there as individuals where they're brought before Joshua, their leader, they're brought before God, and their salvation is, of course, always first an individual matter. Salvation is always first an individual thing, where you, as a creature made in the image of God, are presented with a gospel choice. You're presented as an individual with the choice of choosing God or refusing Him, but it never stays just an individual choice, does it? Salvation never stays just an individual matter. And there is a a lie out there in the world, and it's been going on from the dawn of time, I'm sure, and it will keep going on, that you can just have your own opinions about God and religion and keep it to yourself. It's never just an individual matter. It always branches out. And particularly, if you have been redeemed by God and you've been saved and you've been given a new nature and you now belong to God, you are the light of the world. You now have a responsibility as an ambassador for Christ, a privilege as a representative of your Lord and Savior to represent Him well in the world, whether your neighbor is watching or not. It never remains just an individual matter. And that's why Joshua says at the end of verse 15, but as for me and my house, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. As a father, as a husband, Joshua chose to lead his family in truth. And as Christians, we have to recognize that those closest to us, those living under the same roof as us, that's our first responsibility. That's the first place our faith often branches out, isn't it? I remember as a new believer, I I didn't have Christian family. That created a lot of conversations that were awkward, painful for me. 
that I would rather avoid because all of a sudden, I'm claiming the name of Jesus. At church, would I do the same as a 16-year-old at school? Would I do the same with my father when it's just me and him at home? It always branches out. It affects every relationship that we have in our lives. And those of us who are parents, those of us who are married, we have a responsibility with those in our household to lead them in the truth. And men in particular, God is calling you to lead your household today. God is calling you to step up. God is calling you to lay hold of the truth and to bring it to bear on your life and your family's life. God is calling you that you would lead in faith, lead by example, lead in grace, lead in showing God's patience and kindness and mercy, lead in the truth. Every Christian household is to be gospel-filled. It's not just a thing that happens at church. We take it home with us, don't we? The gospel message, the truth of God, is to permeate our households. And men in particular are called to lead their families in the truth. This is one of the most memorable verses in Scripture. Choose for yourselves, and then concluding with, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It looks great on a plaque. I've seen it. In fact, we might not even own one. I don't know. Maybe somewhere. It looks great. It's a great verse. And it should be up in front of us to remember. But we need to live it too, don't we? We're taking the Lord's name in vain if we say such a thing and we go day by day pretending though, as though that's not the reality. We need to be given over to God as His people, recognizing that He's called us to this. Well, let's look at the response of the people, verses 16 through 18. The people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is He who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage and who did these great signs in our sight and preserved us through all the way in which we went and among all the peoples through whose midst we passed. The Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, even the Amorites who lived in in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. Well, notice how much truth is recognized in their response. They're recounting some of what God has done. They're recognizing, yes, this was God's doing. We didn't lead ourselves out. We didn't make our own victory over our enemies. This was God's victory that He gave to us. And they say this this last sentence, we also will serve the Lord. They're joining Joshua in his proclamation. He is our God. We will serve Him. What a great response. Fire up the organ just as I am. Here we go. This is great. But look at Joshua's stunning response. Verse 19, then Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm 
and consume you after he has done good to you. Well, Joshua is basically saying here, slow down, consider this, God is holy. God is absolutely holy. I don't know if Joshua was sensing some flippancy in their response, that they were taking it a little too lightly, if Joshua thought that they were a little too quick, that they needed to think about it more. But whatever the case may be, I think this is pretty unprecedented, that Joshua would respond this way. He does, though, and he reminds them of God's jealousy. He doesn't only remind them of His holiness. See this in verse 19? He is holy. The very next sentence, He is a jealous God. Now, we've talked about this before, that when we talk about God's jealousy, we are not talking about our kind of jealousy, where we're coveting something our neighbor has, when we're mad at God for not giving us what we think we deserve, and so we get jealous of other people. That's not what this is. God's jealousy is about His desire and His uh, owed worship that is only to Him. You cannot serve God and mammon. Remember when Jesus reminded the people of that? God is jealous for His people when they wander. And I think that's an amazing trait. I think that's a wonderful trait, that God loves His people so much and that God recognizes His his own glory so much that it is expected out of God's holiness that the people would worship Him alone. And He is a jealous God, jealous for the worship He rightly deserves. And so Joshua is calling them to really slow down to consider what is being said. As John MacArthur has said, I, I love how concise this is, you are a slave. If you're not a slave of Christ, you are a slave of sin. You aren't free. Choose your master. That's essentially what Joshua is reminding them of. This is a serious decision. There is no neutrality. And so he didn't call in the band for the closing song. He didn't have an altar call here. He didn't make it easy for them. He didn't say, every head bowed, I see that hand. He didn't do any of that. He didn't jump to assurance. But instead, he calls them to question their own commitment in this moment in light of who God is. This reminded me of when the wife of Zebedee came to Jesus, the mother of James and John. James and John were called the sons of thunder, Jesus' disciples, because they were always ready for a fight, the sons of thunder. And their mom came to Jesus and said, uh, I have a request. She had her sons bow down and said, how about we make one of these young men to be on your right and one to be on your left in your kingdom? I think that'd be great. What a, what a dumb question. <laughs> and really, it wasn't that much of a question, was it? Well, Jesus responds and says, you don't know what you're talking about. He says, he says, you don't know what you're saying. Are these able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink, the cup of God's wrath? We are able, they said. These sons of thunder, always ready for a fight, respond quickly. Yes, we're able. We're able to do it. Wrong. Wrong answer. Missed the mark on that one. No, you are not. 
We are not able to give ourselves totally, completely over to God. But that's what God demands. See this? God here is laying forth the demand to be totally, absolutely given over to Him because He is holy. He is jealous for His people. They cannot turn back to any kind of false worship. He demands perfection. So Joshua didn't have them sign their names to a card or anything like that, but this moment did get set in stone. Let's keep reading. Verse 21, the people responded to Joshua saying, no, no, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen for yourselves the Lord to serve Him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst and incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. The people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord our God and we will obey His voice. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be for a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. Thus it shall be for a witness against you, so that you do not deny your God. Then Joshua dismissed the people, each to his own inheritance. Well, that doesn't exactly seem like a feel-good message, does it? Three times there in that passage, Joshua says, you've got a witness against you in this decision. How often, you know, we are just prone to jump to assuring, patting on the back, and Joshua doesn't jump there. He jumps to, you've got a witness against you here. It's another memorial, a final memorial in this book of Joshua, that under this oak tree, people will look and see that there's a witness against them, reminding them of their obligation. There was one commentary, I don't remember which one, said this rock was, this stone was like the Plymouth Rock for Israel. Here they are, they've arrived in the land, and that rock means something. The rock heard their commitments. Now, that's not saying the rock grew ears and took note, okay? I don't want you to think that the Bible's teaching anything like that. But symbolically, that rock was there to remind them of what was said that day, that they would remember their commitment to God. Joshua added their words to a book that they could keep in addition to the stone, and this stone was a witness against them at Shechem. What's interesting about Shechem is this is where Abraham received the promise from God. If you go back to Genesis 12, where was Abraham when he received God's promise? He was at Shechem. And you know what he did? He built an altar. You know where he built it? Under an oak tree. Isn't that something? Maybe that's the same one. Maybe the stones of it were still scattered about the tree. And then later in the book of Genesis, you read about Jacob. Jacob ended up in Shechem. And at Shechem is where Jacob put away the false gods. And you know where he put those false gods? He buried them under an oak tree. This is like becoming a pretty important place for Israel, isn't it? And now they have this memorial stone that's a witness against them because of their commitment that day. 
Well, the seriousness of this decision was certainly communicated. I hope you see that. This was not a flippant, casual, this was not an easy thing that was happening. But Yahweh had shown grace to the nation, and now they had to choose fidelity to Him. In case you missed it, I want you to see this contrast. Look again with me at verse 15, where Joshua says, Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. And now, drop down to verse 19, he tells them, You will not be able to serve the Lord. Now, what on earth here, Joshua? Choose for yourself today who you're going to serve. And in his next breath, he says, Yeah, you won't be able to do that. What attention we have here in Scripture, isn't there? Well, serving God requires God's grace, a life given over to God in faith, a life that is transformed, a life that with God that truly serves Him out of fear, a life that is sincere, a life that is based on truth. Can you conjure that up? You can't. You don't have that within yourself. And so you have to fall back on the grace of God, the sovereign grace of God, the efficacious grace of God, meaning it produces an effect. God's grace produces a result, and you rely on God's grace in you and through you, bringing you through this life for His glory. In Romans chapter 11, we find out a little bit more about Israel. Remember earlier I read to you from Romans where Paul says, a Jew, a true Jew, is one who is one inwardly. And not all these children of Israel are true Jews. Not all of them have a heart devoted to God. And you might ask, why? Why wouldn't the whole nation appeal to God? Why wouldn't the whole nation be true and devoted from the heart? Well, he tells us why. Romans chapter 11, verse 5, Paul says, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant, that means believing Jews, according to God's gracious choice. This is based on the choice of God. Verse 7, he continues, What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Sovereign grace. This is a work of God in the lives of sinners that brings them to the place where they fear Him, they serve Him, they walk with Him, they repent, they drop the false idols in their hands, they turn away from the false worship, and they appeal to the one true God, and their lives are given over to Him. How does that happen? Not because some people have better inner fortitude than others, not because some people are just, you know, smarter or more spiritual. This happens because of God's gracious choice. This is God's grace in the lives of those whom He has chosen. And Jesus, He kind of took the same path as Joshua a lot when He was calling people to Himself, didn't He? When He would put out a blanket statement of, come follow me, and someone would come up and say, I'm ready. And He would say, are you now? And He would often make it harder on them, wouldn't He? He would press into that and say, okay, Okay, well, what are the commandments? What are the commandments? Rattles them off. I've kept all of them. Really? Well, you just broke one of them. (laughs) And he says, go sell all your stuff and come follow me. He made it harder. He was often making it harder. 
He was calling people to count the cost. And in so doing, you know what that reveals? God's gracious choice. Alexander McLaren, I love the way he writes. Alexander McLaren wrote this, The hand that seems to repel often most powerfully attracts. Many a boy has been made a sailor by the stories of hardships which his parents have meant as dissuasives. Joshua here is doing exactly what Jesus Christ often did. He refused glib vows because he desired whole hearts. Taking that illustration he just used of boys becoming sailors, I think about even now, today's ads for the army, I've been seeing some lately, where uh, they're, they're children at home, they're teenagers at home, and they're talking to their parents about what they want to do. And the parents are like saying, are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? But the child is so set on the fight. The child is so set on giving his life or her life over to that cause. And in the, in the commercial, they're showing the child on the battlefield, talking to the parent, like reasoning with the parent while he's clearing the room with his gun. Because he's already there in his mind. And nothing, not even the the call of a parent to say, are you sure, is going to stop that child. And perhaps you've had some stubborn kids in your life. And they were going to do what they were going to do. And you tried, you tried to stop, and they were obstinate. (laughs) Well, what happens when God's efficacious grace, God's powerful grace comes into the life of a person? That person is going. That person is running to Jesus. That person is going to follow Jesus. That person's going to persevere. That person doesn't care. I I mean, you could see it in your life. I saw it in my life. Some people, depending on their life stage or where they are in the world, run a very high risk when they join themselves to Jesus. But if God has worked in that heart, no one's going to stop. That person is there because God is at work. That person fears God because God is at work. That person serves the Lord and is going to turn away from those false idols because God is at work. God doesn't try. God does. And when God is working in the lives of the people that He's calling to Himself, it's done. He has His work. He will accomplish His purposes. Job 42.2, I know that no plan of yours can be thwarted. You think that includes salvation? You better believe it. What could be more important? God is powerfully at work in the lives of His people. Well, it's hard for us to know whenever we have evangelistic rather conversations with people how hard to make it hard or how, easy, how, how we should make it easy for that person. Joshua seems to be making it hard here, and apparently he did it right, because look at verse 31. It says, Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. God led Joshua in the right way there, showing him what he was to say, how he was to speak. And so Israel served God. And now we, of course, have to ask ourselves that question too. Will you choose God or the wisdom of the world? Will you choose God or the false worship of the world? Will you choose God or will you choose sin? 
And those of us who are living for Him, those of us who have made that choice by God's grace, we need to remember God's grace, don't we? We have to remember the grace of God. You know that that little phrase, it's so true, there but for the grace of God go I. It's God's grace working in our lives that's brought us to where we are today, faith in Jesus. Well, there are a few short notes to finish the book that are quite interesting. Let's look at verses 29 and 30. This is the death of Joshua. It came about after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in timnath Sarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, on the north of Mount Gosh. <laughs> oh, gosh, that's an interesting word. Well, this is, here's Joshua's death. He was only 110. So some of you, most of you, have a long way to go, okay? Maybe all of us have a long way to go to 110. And he was buried in his own inheritance. And here he gets, for the first time and the only time, this title, the servant of the Lord, there in verse 29. Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord. Moses had this title over and over again throughout his life. And here, for the first time, and only time, Joshua is called the servant of the Lord. Okay, then now let's read 32 to the end. 32 and 33. Now they buried the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt at Shechem, in the place of ground, or the piece of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of money. And they became the inheritance of Joseph's sons. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died, and they buried him at Gibeah of Phinehas, his son, which was given him in the hill country of Ephraim. Well, you didn't realize they had Joseph's bones the whole time, did you? That's kind of a surprise there at the end. This whole time, they've been toting around the bones of Joseph from a long time ago. Um, well, he was not buried in some strange land, Joseph, but he was buried in his inheritance. This just really puts an exclamation point on God's faithfulness, doesn't it? Surely there had to be times where someone knew that they had the bones of Joseph and they weren't going to bury them until it was time. And perhaps they would doubt and think, are we ever going to put him to rest or what? Well, here God has shown himself faithful and they were able to bury Joseph in his inheritance. Eleazar, the priest, he played a similar role in Joshua's life that Aaron did in Moses' life. He too passed away and died. And this really signifies the end of a generation here at the, book, the end of the book of Joshua. Well, had they arrived? Had they come full circle? Yes and no. Yes and no, right? Uh, here they are at Shechem again. Here they are back in this place, and they're there because of God's faithfulness. Not one word of God has failed. God has proved Himself faithful in all things. And yet, as we looked last week, this is not the end. This was not yet the new earth. There was work to do. Israel was to press on in the faith in light of God's faithfulness. And so one last time, I want us to consider the, the summary I gave you at the beginning of this series for the book of Joshua. Yahweh keeps His promises by powerfully saving His people through faith and purging the evil among them. Therefore, we shall courageously follow Him into blessing. Well, God faithfully took this nation into their land. 
Each tribe was now free to go, each to his own inheritance. What a beautiful phrase. What a beautiful final scene. And of course, we too have an inheritance from the Lord, don't we? We have an inheritance that's ours, and it hasn't been fully realized yet. We live in that already but not yet tension where we have God, we have been saved, but one of these days we'll be with God and we will be saved, right? We live in that beautiful tension. And so we're not to pretend as though we've arrived, that we're walking in the new earth now and that it's all behind us. Not yet. We are to press on in faith. Like Israel, we are to courageously follow God into blessing. He keeps His promises. And as He does so, He's going to purge the evil among us and in us. And He's going to keep every word that He said as we follow Him into blessing. What a beautiful picture of our relationship with God we've seen through the book of Joshua. Well, next week we will look at a psalm. We're going to look at a psalm each of the next four Sundays. And then in December, we're going to start a series in 2 Corinthians, my favorite book of the Bible. It may last until I die. I don't know. There are some verses where I think, I can't do a whole sermon on that verse. I need the whole sermon just for a word of that verse. So we'll see how that goes. Hopefully, I won't torture you. So let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word that you've preserved this for us that You've given us instruction how we are to live. And we thank You for this call from Joshua that still speaks today, that we are to choose for ourselves who we are to serve, the true and living God or the false and dead idols of this world. God, help us each and every day to apply that reality to our lives. Each and every situation we find ourselves in, that we would bring the reality of Your existence to bear and that we would choose you in faith, that we would repent when we need to, restoring fellowship with you, and that we would fear you and serve you sincerely in the truth. God, help us to have that vision day by day, that you would be our vision in how we live. God, we love you, we thank you, and ask for you to continue to keep us in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.